0: I'm Christina Bosnakis. And I'm Gabby Godet, And you're listening to the TDN's Let's Talk. Welcome back to the Let's Talk podcast. We're up to episode three. And today we'll be speaking about mental health.
1: And we have three jockeys joining us two Hall of Famers, John Velasquez and Ramon Dominguez, as well as Richie Migliori, a Fox uh, Naira commentator.
0: Let's get into it. Hope you enjoy.
1: Speaking about horse racing currently, obviously it's gone through a lot of changes over the years, uh, over the past few decades. And one of the biggest changes really that we've seen uh, over the last probably two two decades has been technology. And in many ways, it's been a wonderful thing. It's been great for horse racing in so many ways. And one of them is actually social media. Social media has been great in some ways and in other ways it's had its challenges. And I think that's where we want to kick off here is social media, the pressures in terms of your profession uh, basically going out and doing what you have to do every day, but then also having to deal with social media. And I'm going to start with uh, Richie here first, uh, because I know that you were on social media. You're very active on social media. You let us into your to your life. Uh, we, we get to see all the wonderful food you're eating and all the uh, wonderful exploits, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. And but there is there is a, a, another side to it, Richie, and I know that you left
2: it for a while. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think social media is a great tool to reach people and let them know who you are and and, and kind of let them into your world and um, use it to promote things. Obviously, we were asked to um, get on uh, Twitter in particular to promote uh, doing shows on Fox, and, and it, it's a great medium. But I don't like when people becomes so negative. Um, you know, the one thing that I try to portray, and, and it's my attitude, is is just being very positive and and educational. You know, I I think one thing we have all have to really keep in mind is so many people don't really understand our industry, horse racing, that well. And using social media to kind of reach people, to see that we're real people, that you know, just like them, but we are in a different um, you know, industry and, and something that we can use to help educate. Um, And I just got sour with it by the uh, beginning of the summer, people being negative and jumping on any little thing to uh, espouse these, you know, horrible notions about racing or, you know, just negativity in general. So I I took a break. I'm back on it now. Um, I'm not as active, but I'm definitely, uh, you know, still trying to share what I think is pertinent in my life.
3: You're absolutely right. Uh, uh, Even when I uh, retired, still uh, social media least. For me, it was something that I was not deeply involved with. Um, since then, I have uh, been doing it, and it's something that probably has gotten a little out of hand at points. And uh, I can see definitely, as you mentioned, Christina, how social media in general um, has its pros and cons. So um, certainly, when I look at the positives, is that it gives the average person uh, an opportunity to voice their opinion, Uh, But that itself also presents an issue because sometimes uh, there are people that by now we all recognize that it's not an issue when you're voicing an opinion that really is not educated and and you're wrong. Let's just say that you're wrong. It is okay. I mean, a lot of us, even if we're talking about anything within racing, I will tell you something that I believe that's the way it is. And as it comes out, as it turns out, um, I may be wrong because nobody knows at all. However, the issue is that there are people who have an agenda to just be negative, negative. and when we talk right now strictly about horse racing, there are those who are just looking for something to really talk negativity about the sport. And by no means the horse racing is perfect. However, if we just talk about the issues, we are the our, even our perception is going to be that it's an awful sport. But the reality is quite the opposite, where in the last decade the advances and the all the different things that have taken place to make the sport better when it comes to even after care, when it comes to safe safety uh, uh, is definitely much better and we're moving into the right direction. So I feel like sometimes uh, there are people who are very smart and just as they can determine that there is an issue and over and over talk about it, talking about it doesn't, doesn't solve the problem. Uh, why don't you utilize that energy into trying to come up with a solution, or maybe join forces with somebody. If that's it is, if it is really that important to you, try to just be on the positive side and, and join forces and have a collective effort to make a positive change. So uh, those are my views in social media. But certainly these days, uh, we I feel like we live a dual life: uh, the social media life and the real life. So there has to be a, a delicate balance because. Um, Sometimes social media can certainly run our lives and it's not positive.
0: I just want to shift gears a little bit. And, um, you know, if you speak to a jockey that has had any bit of a career in this industry, I would say ninety nine percent 9% of them have had, uh, an injury, um, whether it be a severe injury or whether it be, you know, an, an injury that they can come back from, or even just a fall, um, Richie, I kind of, I wanted to start with you with this because we, we've talked about this before. Um, and, um, can you kind of take us back to that, that moment where, um, you, you, essentially you had to retire and, um, kind of what that incident was like.
2: Well, it's kind of an ironic thing because, um, I had broken my neck in an accident, uh, way back in 1988, um, had surgery, they fused, uh, several of my vertebrae in my neck and the accident that actually ended my career in 2010 The doctor that had to do another surgery and put plates and screws in my neck said that if I hadn't broken my neck back in 88, the severity of the injuries I had this time, um, I most likely would have been a quadriplegic. He said because the um, scar tissue and all the sinew that had built up around the original injury actually held things together. Um, And I actually went back to riding. I was in a lot of pain, but thinking I had a pinched nerve, I could work my way through it. I wrote a filly that Johnny's uh, familiar with life at 10 and just want a stake on her. And I wanted to go ride her in Chicago when I finally got to Mount Sinai Hospital. My wife, Carmela, had made a bunch of phone calls, got me in to see a specialist. Um, he took all these images and he said, I see what's wrong with you. And I said, I, I got a pinched nerve, right? And he says, no, you've got six broken vertebrae in your neck and two in your back. And he goes, I don't know how you walked in here. So I asked him if I could go ride life at 10 in the 60 sales in Chicago and then come back to the hospital. And he said, no, that's not going to happen. You're going to check in today. And they did the surgery and my, my career was over. Um, Unlike Ramon, who I was in the midst of his prime. um, I was in the back nine. I was in the twilight of my career. I, I, you know, physically I wasn't what I once was mentally. I could see a race. Well Um, I could, you know, still, uh, had a great feel and judge of horses, but I, I wasn't, it certainly wasn't what I once was when I would call my prime. Um, so even though it it was admittedly towards the end, I was 44 when the accident happened. Um, it still sent me into a deep, dark uh, place. I, I went into a deep depression, not originally when I first got out of the hospital and was home, uh, I didn't feel good and I didn't care at that moment. I didn't care you know, about horse racing. I didn't care about riding three or four months later when I started feeling better. And the reality was, you're never going to do that again. Um, I really got depressed and, and I struggled for well over a year. I was in as dark a place as I've ever been in my life. Um, and I had to kind of reassess my approach to it. I was fortunate that I got great opportunities to start doing television and be involved in the game. But I couldn't look at it like I'd never do that again. I had to look at it like I'm not going to do that today, almost like a, a, a person struggling with addiction. I, if I looked at it like I'm never going to ride a horse again, I'm never going to break out of the gate again, it would overwhelm me and I would get very, very down. Um, but if I just wake up in the morning and go, I'm not going to do that today, I could deal with it. It was what was right in front of me. Um, and again, admittedly, as hard as it was for me, I'm sure with Ramon, it was even harder because Ramon was at the height of his powers. I mean, he was doing so many things that were just amazing that, you know, I've never seen a rider be able to have a horse in a spot and steady him along without ever breaking the momentum. And then they would find more when, when the whole the opportunity presented itself. Um, and to that end too, Johnny, um, you know, I, I was already a, a veteran. I was a senior rider when Johnny came around. Um, and what, the accidents and injuries Johnny's gone through and come back and ridden with the same enthusiasm, the same intensity, never any, any, uh, you know, fear or doubt. Um, And Johnny's always been since the time he was a kid, when he came to New York, always somebody that was always looking out for the other riders. And I've always been astonished. I don't know how he balances his workload professionally and then how much he does for his fellow riders. I, I just don't see how there's enough hours in the day.
4: Yeah, thank you, Richie. But I mean, I have to say that I'm—I've been one of the lucky ones. So the three of us here, that all my interest that I, I that I've had in the past, you know, is 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 not bad enough that you know stopped me for coming back from writing. though. You know, though have breaking every bone in my body, like you both, you both, um, it's never been as dangerous like you guys, though. So you know, I've been I've been one of the blessed ones, you know. There uh being able to come back and, and and do what i love for a living so you're yeah. being
2: too humble that accident in the breeder's cup at Santa anita and, and and we know this you almost lost your life um and had to remove well this. yeah i
4: was one but you know so i, I still you know i i came, I came out of the hospital <laughs> that's my point though you know I mean? and it was not serious enough but i mean i, I couldn't die there that's what it saved my life and, and thank god for that but you know once i come out in I felt like, you know, I was good. And the, the doctors told me that I was going to have a full recovery. It was as to me, if I was acceptable to, you know, to come back to ride. Um, and I was just like, so I never doubted that I was not coming back, though, you know, so. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I almost lost my life. But, you know, I, I came out of there and never thought that, you know, shit, I'm I'm going to retire. But, you know, I was just like, no, the doctor told me I, I, I can do this. You know, my wife said to me, so what are you going to do? So the doctor told me that, as I said to me, I'm going to give myself three months, four months, whatever it is that it takes me, you know, to get ready and get back at it. It's like, it's okay. She says, I just want to know because we have to make plans. What are we going to do? You know, and I told her, well, if I feel good and I get my opportunities, I'm going right back at it. <laughs> so that's, that was it. And thank God, I mean, she supported it. She didn't, she didn't, you know, say no that, you know, that's it for her. She. I mean, obviously the kids and her, is their life too, you know, because they know that, you know, there was, you know, two times, I you mean, know, that, that one's the most serious one that they, all, they all, almost lost me, um, but she was supportive of it. And uh, just said that was my, my, my decision that I that, that was gonna go back and she say, okay, and okay, let's go and do it again.
2: <laughs> I, 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 I've got to just interrupt a second. I'm laughing because um, Carmela, you know, when I decided I was gonna try to find a doctor to give me the opinion I wanted, I went through several, I couldn't get an okay to ride. Uh, a friend of mine, a fellow rider, I'm not going to call him out here, had a friend in Tijuana, a doctor, and he said, if you give him $10,000, he will give you an okay. So I told Carmela, I'm going to fly to Tijuana and get it an okay. I'm going to pay this guy 10000 She said, that's fine. I support whatever you want to do. But while you're there, find an attorney also. So she, she had <laughs> had about enough.
0: <laughs> Very nice. You flying know, in the sand. I have to say
1: we, we should, our next uh, podcast should be with the wives of jockeys Yeah, because I feel like just thinking about all of your, like, they are, have to be rock stars, just the, the ups and downs and just a lot of the traumatic nature of just a lot of what you guys go through. They go through it too. They're your wives. So they really go through the struggles, but you know, Richie mentioned it, you know, Johnny has also touched on it. Ramon, you were at the height of your powers when you were when you were injured and you were and you had to retire. That is obviously different than what Richie experienced a little bit in any case, different than what Johnny's experiencing. Tell us about emotionally, how do you go from you were at the top of your game and then all of a sudden somebody tells you or it's you decide that I can't do this anymore?
3: Yeah, it, it was a process, and uh, part of the process, I said that there is a grieving period, because um, in my case, uh, number one, initially, all, all alone, I thought that I was going to come back to ride, and uh, I even gave an interview, said, yeah, I think that I'll be back, in. I don't know if I say a month or two, honestly, I I wasn't in, in my right mind at the moment, I was still going through recovery, but um, the time came when the doctor basically set me down, and they explained to me all of the injuries that I have had before, uh, the brain injuries, and uh what it meant for me to go back and be exposed to hitting my head again they say we cannot clear you you should not write again so i did do what uh, Migliori did i know what he wanted to do to pay ten thousand dollars but i did go to see a couple other doctors and get another opinions and everybody was pretty consistent saying oh you're lucky and they are really they were blown away as to how i was doing cognitively how well i was doing but so they they came when i announced my retirement and um It's something that, of course, it felt sort of, a. it didn't feel real because, uh, but making the announcement wasn't really the most difficult thing. It's what led, or, or what happened afterwards, the days that came after that, because I got to a point where I said, wow, this is real. I will not be riding a race again. So that is difficult because it's not only something that we absolutely love. It's one thing when you have to stop doing something. Let's just say that you have a job that is really paying the bills, but you're not really passionate about it. I always said that I would have paid to ride horses for a long time. So therefore it was my passion. So even if you are aware that that is what you do for a living, and even if you're proud of your accomplishments and what you do, it's not really doesn't define who you are. There is still this um, intertwinedness between who you are and what you do that you feel like I was, or at least I felt like I was losing part of me or I was losing who I was. And that is so wrong. So uh, through this uh, period and just reflecting back, I came um, to realize, uh, listen, I am proud of what I did or, or about what I accomplished because I put a lot of hard work and it was a beautiful time. Uh, but it's a uh, time to turn the page. And uh, I was able to turn the page where I can sincerely say that I was okay with uh, leaving that in the past. Uh, it didn't happen overnight. And... I couldn't say enough about how important it was uh, to have a, a spouse like I do. My wife was incredible. Um, right after my retirement, we came to Saratoga and I didn't know when I go to the track. She said, let's go to a track. I said, heck no, I'm not going to the track because it was really painful for me to go and watch a race. It was still too early. And uh, one day she said, no, no, it's not if you want to go, we're going. And so we went. And I was glad that I did it because I had a great time. And then after that, we went again another day. And from then on, it was uh, actually pleasant and I enjoy going to a track. So, but it certainly was a process. And now speaking with some of my fellow riders, my peers that retire even on their own, uh, I realized most of them face the same thing where uh, there is this uh, feeling of uh, the kind of you losing a little bit of your persona or your identity.
2: Well, that's interesting you say that, Ramon. Because that, that was the biggest thing, and, and I'm almost embarrassed to say it now. But I felt like I lost my identity. You—you you start dreaming to do something when you're 10, working at it. By the time I was 12, by the time I was 15, I was riding professionally, and then 44, it's over, and I really felt like I lost my identity. Now, with you know, it's almost 12 years since I rode. I, my identity is being a father, you know, being a husband, being a friend, being a, a brother um, uh, maybe being a mentor to younger riders. So, um, but in that moment, that's how you feel because it's all you've ever done, you you know, and, and your routine. I loved going to the jockey's room. I couldn't wait to get to the jockey's room in the morning and the camaraderie in there and maybe taking somebody's money at cards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You did very good on that, Richie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But what is it, what is it? And this is for any one of you that wants to answer this. What is it in the jockey's psyche that you can be in one of the most frightening spills. I mean, something that's just harrowing to look at. And then you can just get up in the next moment because i remember angel cordero told me a story once and i think he was talking about i think it was jose santos that he was talking about that he broke his leg and his leg was broken and he was stuffing you know things into his boot to make sure to stabilize it so he can go and ride a race and i'm thinking to myself this is a different kind of psychology right that i i don't understand because i i'm not that way yeah, we are crazy but, yeah, but- we are crazy people yeah we all we all done that i mean just
4: trace things that we come up with and uh, i don't know black pain or something and we come up with this stupid things. So says i know i can i can work through it and we all do it for whatever reason i can't explain it why uh but are you, you know, trying I guess-
0: to prove it to yourself or prove yourself to other people though
4: no, because you, it's not, not not to prove to anybody. I, I think for me and, uh, in my case, it's like no. I think it's the fear of losing your business or losing the horse that you love, or the losing that that you know that moment that you you can. Uh, it, it could be a, a really good horse, though, you know, it's a stake or something like that. You, the, the fear losing that moment that, that you, the opportunity that you have right now, though, and I think that alone makes you think differently. Though I can work through the pain, I can do this. Though you know, I mean, obviously. You know, afterwards you, see you when you completely sound and, and not feeling any pain, you said, "Man, I was so freaking stupid." But you know what? You do it again. I mean, I did it again and again and again. And uh, you know, it's stupid, thought, you know, but you know, the fear of losing that opportunity of a bad horse that verse that, that that you love and that you want to be part of it, it make you it make you do things that are very stupid.
3: Definitely, what Johnny's saying. Uh, the business aspect has a lot to do. Uh, we are creatures of habits, and. It's not something that you're trained to, oh, you need to be tough. Uh, I mean, some of us may have that kind of upbringing, pretty tough, that you need to to, to be strong. But I think that is something that you just become that person where you know that basically there is no other option. If there is the slim chance that you can ride, you'll do it. And there is really never a good opportunity to choose to say, I'm going to take off my mask. Because if you are, whether starting or you are just struggling to Get going, and you say, Man, if I stop now because I have a hairline fraction or a fracture or something that uh, this pain because I went down, um, this horse that I am riding or this other horse, uh, I'm not going to be able to ride him. And that's going to basically make me enough money to pay my bills. But if you are in a position like Johnny, where you're riding these amazing horses and winning these big races, same thing, I, I if I don't ride this weekend or if I don't, don't ride for two weeks, somebody else is going to ride my horses. So now we all can definitely talk about times when we have riding when we shouldn't have. And I, I mean, I had in two occasions, I rode with a fracture. And it's something that I don't know that, like I was saying, whether it is a huge trend to show to people. No, it's really a personal thing that I, I, I know that I can do it even if I cannot, if I don't hit with this hand, I'm going to be able to hit with this hand. And it's sort of a challenge to yourself, but uh, there is no a whole lot of thought put behind it. You just, that's the only option. And, and it's something that when you stop, and whether like Johnny said, uh, after all is said and done, and all is said and done and after a few weeks or a month, or when you are in a different environment and you reflect
2: on that, you say that's just pure insanity. But you know, that this is, it's important. And, and I, I want young riders to understand this. And I, and I talk to them and I say this, for every jockey, for every athlete, there's there's a last ride, there's a last step bat, there's a last play. And if you're fortunate, you you get to choose when that last ride is. And, you know, a, a few notable guys, Chris McCarron, Jerry Bailey, Pat Day, they accomplished amazing things and they made a decision, it was time to step away. vast majority of riders don't get that opportunity. So I tell young riders, there will be a last ride and hopefully you get to choose when. But that's why you owe it to yourself to make the most out of the time you have to be the best you possibly can be. Because once it's over, you can't go, well, I wish I'd have worked harder. You don't have a do over. And you've already got a job that an ambulance follows you around. You owe it to yourself to be the very best you can be. Absolutely.
1: Richie, I want to ask you something now. And again, we can ask everybody this particular question. You mentioned the ambulance following you around. Again, that's a, that's a different thing that most of us don't experience day to day, certainly. Um, do you feel fear? Did you feel fear? At times, was there a moment where you thought to yourself, you know, you, that feeling came into you?
2: I, I think anybody who doesn't admit that that there are times when you have fear, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's being able to do what you need to do despite the fear. And, and not that you live with a constant fear, but sure, you get in a spot or you see somebody go in a spot in front of you and you oh, this isn't going to be good. Yeah, of course. In that moment, you're like, ah, but it's not the thing that's forefront in your mind. Um, you know, for me, I've always, life's risk and reward, the reward and the pleasure and, and, and the love of what I was, you know, privileged to do that, you know, I, I was a kid who grew up in an apartment building in Brooklyn, New York, Watching the races every Saturday on Channel 9, uh, Charles C. Canny, Frank Wright, um, then the fact that I was a part of this world, that it took me out of the city, it, you know, it, it, to the point now I have a farm. I'm, I'm talking to you, looking out on my fields. I, it, it, the the rewards so far outweighed the risk. And I'm also a, a believer in fate. I just genuinely believe there's a huge book like a ledger. And you can't run from your destiny. Whatever's meant to be is going to be. All I can do is control the person I am, be the best I can be at what I'm trying to do, and be the best person I can be. So, no, I, I don't think any rider could ride with the idea of walking out out to the you know race course or out to the paddock with fear. But anybody who doesn't admit there's a moment at times when somebody clips heels in front of you or you got a horse running off of you or running out on heels.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: You know, that moment, of course, you're gonna have that Absolutely. moment. Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. I mean, there's fear all the time, but you know, that somebody falling, somebody, the horse break down, unfortunately, and you're behind somebody like that. And, or even your own horse. So that's so, so always there, but you don't, you don't have that fear going into the race though. You know, you have, you plan what you're going to do in the race, what anticipating what's going to happen. Hopefully your horse will respond for the things that you like to do. And once you gates gates open, believe me, all you're thinking is about a strategy. Oh, what's needed of you? Where are you going to go? Um, so uh, and the fear will come into that moment that something happens in the race. Other, other, other than that, I mean, for me anyway, if you are, if you have fear going into the into the race, you should not be riding because you make more mistakes. You do every, every uh, mistake is possible in there you, because you don't go to a spot where you're supposed to go, you or you go out when you're not supposed to go out. So it makes it very difficult for a person that those have to be and I said I I there's some of them up there that I think they should not be riding though you know and and, and it's, a, it's a problem for, for everybody though you know um for me Richie, obviously ramon I can talk to us like you know when i saw them ride them there was no fear there they were going to go to the place that they need to be they were do, they were doing the right things that, you know those are the people you you watch though, you know and, you, and, and then you learn from the people who those a tender, tender or had the fear to go to those places because those are the things that you don't want to do. You know? So you always try to watch everybody and learn from everybody. And, and yes, I mean, for me, and, and, I, and I talk for these two guys all, all uh, as well because I saw them riding, um, the fear was not there when there were other races. You know, when the other race, they're, they're, they're focusing on what they're supposed to be doing.
3: Well, let me tell you, um, we're talking, when you talk about fear, obviously, We are um, explaining about the the actual fear or the concern or the worries uh, while riding a race and uh, God forbid there is an accident and uh, certainly both Johnny and Richard explained that very well. Now, but there are other fears um, that has to do with the life of a jockey because it is such a demanding career. It's such such a demanding profession because fear in itself when it comes to the unknown. When you're a jockey and you, gosh, you are doing well, but every day presents with a different set of challenges. You don't know really what is going to happen. And it's different perhaps for the jockey or it's magnified, I should say, compared to other athletes or most athletes, just because the athletes prepare and train for a specific game or perhaps for a season. Jockeys have an never ending season. It's year-round racing. So and even if you have great business and you're doing well and you had an amazing day today, tomorrow you have to turn the page. It's a brand new day. And things can start going back when you fall into a slump and, and things change. So that is always in the back of your mind the, the concern. But I want to go back briefly to talk about the other fear that we that they were speaking about and uh something that I learned through my career. This is going to be a little bit rough uh, to, to explain just because of the nature of, of what was going through my mind. But it was a great lesson that I learned. So I remember clear where I was driving my Honda to Aqueduct, where since the night before, when I look at the paper and, and saw so what I was riding, there was a horse that I was riding that I had ridden before that I didn't want to ride. I was very concerned about this horse because he didn't feel well. And um, so I'm thinking about this horse and all I could think is about this horse. And somebody had lent me some uh, CD about Tony Robbins. And uh, I happened to be listening to this. And he talked about the acronym of uh, fear. And he says, fear stands for false evidence appearing real. So when I hear that, I say, wow, that sounds pretty cool. So up until that point, I was told, I was told by other people that, you know, that just try to forget about it, you know, try to forget about it, but that never works. You know, I tried to forget about this horse that I was riding that I was very concerned or I was afraid of, and uh, but it was sort of in the back of my mind reminding me, hey, I'm here, you still have to ride me. So when I listened to this guy talking about false evidence appearing real, I chose to look into this, like, in the face and say, okay, what is really the big issue here? So I go out there, and I'm going to have an opportunity to warm up this horse. If this horse doesn't feel sunny enough, I have the other choice to tell the, the, the very to, listen, I don't want to ride a horse, let's crash it. But let's say that the horse warms up well, and I put him in the gate, and then in the race, he doesn't feel well. Well, I have the opportunity to just pull him up, and then I'll tell the stewards that the horse didn't feel well. But let's just say that the horse actually feels okay, but he happens to get hurt. Well, the fact that he gets hurt doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a bad injury, so he doesn't have to fall. But let's say that the horse ends up really getting hurt where he falls. Well, if I fall, doesn't necessarily mean that I have to get hurt. So by then, I had to take take it to a place where there were so many ifs that I realized that it was pretty unlikely to happen. And I honestly went into the job room feeling so much better. And I don't remember what the horse did, but the horse was fine. So, but it, I, it was really a big lesson for me and something that I kind of went back to this place of trying to have this approach with other um, cases that were similar instead of really trying to forget about it, was just kind of looking at this fear in the eyes. That's
0: incredible. I mean, it's so nobody knows that. Nobody knows how cerebral, uh, you know honestly, Ramon, you are, and um, and Johnny and Richie, I mean, there's just so much thought that goes into it. But when you were talking about fear, and I kind of want to stay on that topic, when you come back from these injuries, um, and especially now, I feel like, or even then, you're under so much scrutiny, whether it be from the jockey, I mean, excuse me, whether it be from the trainer, or public opinion, or broadcasters uh whatever it might be or even nowadays with social media um how do you work through that pressure and even when you're coming back off of injury number one but especially if you're going through a slump I mean how do you get out of your head
2: it's a tough question but but you know like for me I and I'll I'll go back to my first major injury I you know and I spent six weeks in the hospital and Pete Ferriola was the leading trainer in New York at the time and and uh Yeah. He came to the hospital and said, when you're ready, and this was, I was still in a halo. And he said, when you're ready to ride, I will put you on your first winner. So you need the support of people that believe in you and and trainers and owners that will give you the opportunity. Um, And he gave me the first horse. And the only thing he said to me in the paddock was just don't fall off. And the horse won by six or seven lengths. So immediately when you win, it kind of puts it behind you and, and it, removes doubt from other people's mind. And I was always fortunate of the many injuries that I incurred during my career, whether it was Kieran McLaughlin, whether it was Michael Hushin, whether it was John Kimmel, I always had someone I can go to and say, listen, I need to come back winning. And they would put me on an ultra live horse to get off the mark winning. Um, And and that washes away a lot of your own doubts. And then the scrutiny that people are putting you under. For me, I never
4: put that pressure on me or coming back, but you, also, like to come back winning, and I was very fortunate. I mean, I got hurt when I was a bug, and I had Carlos, uh, your good friend, uh, Carlos, figure out, right? Bro, oh, yeah. Yeah, figure out. So, uh, it was working for Howie Tetcher, uh, and I have John DeStefano, and, and I have all the guys that uh, at the beginning of my career got hurt. So, like, don't worry, when you come back, it's like, we get you. We get you, rolling. We we get you. We, we, we get you. Uh, Carlos got me out out of my house, three weeks, not even three weeks after I broke my collarbone. bone said, you got to come out. It's like, Carlos, I haven't done anything in three weeks. This horse, all you have to do is hold on. Don't pull up, you're going to win anyway. It's like, Carlos, I cannot do this. I haven't written, I haven't done anything for three weeks. Johnny telling you, you got to get in this horse. He's going to take you around and you're just going to win. <laughs> so those are the things that you think. So you have somebody telling you, no, no, just come out and just hold on to this horse that you're going to win. So those things you think about it, you know, that you have people supporting you. They believe and believe it on you and things happens like that but every incident that i have or every accident that i had after that i've never had that pressure because you know what i wanted to prove it to myself that i could do the job that i was doing before so i never thought about the scrutiny or whatever, anybody else what was thinking about me i was thinking about myself i always thought it's like man it's like the, if, if i'm if i want to do this i i got to prove it to myself so that was my mentality. And that's been my mentality from, from day one. If I'm going to do this, I got to do it well. Or the fear for me is not doing it well, the best I can do. You know, I, I want to make sure that I can do it for, for me, not for anybody else. And that's been my fear, that I will go back and I can do it the way I wanted to do it. Not because anybody is telling me or oh, thinking, how can I do it? It's about me mentally that I can do the job the way I wanted to do it. And I think that's what has is what has worked for me all these years.
3: I feel like in my case, um, the first time that I uh, got hurt, I, I mean, being very young, and uh, I feel like it was like, uh, wow, this can happen to me too. Because up until that point, you, I don't know, I feel like I was Superman. Like, I, I, that's not going to happen to me. And so, and then anytime that I broke up on and I came back, there was always a little bit of concern, a little bit of fear the first few months and something that, I wasn't even thinking about it. Um, It was just sort of in the back of your mind, but you go back to, you have done it so many times that after no time, that's over and you kind of go back into your routine. My biggest concern, just like uh, Richie, it was um, to come back and start winning quick because although I try not to be too worried about what people were thinking, I couldn't help it because my business depended on me doing well and what people thought of me as a jockey. So I remember one of my last uh, injuries, um, uh, one of the reporters in in Iraq came to the joke's room after I wrote a race and I just surely, I mean, I had just been writing a few days um, and he said, hey, Ramon, I'm going to write an article do you know that you're off for 17 after you came back? Uh, what's happening? Are you afraid? I'm like thinking, oh my God, are you kidding me? So that's something that it was uh, concerning to me to come back and be in a slump because I didn't want people to think, oh, he's not the same. Uh, but yes, it's just uh, the nature of the business.
0: Such a great conversation with the jockeys that we're having so far, Christina. But we want to take a quick pause for a word from our sponsors. And First Racing, it's a company that you and I have had plenty of experience with. We're so happy that they're on board,
1: thrilled. And I think it's so appropriate. I had said to you earlier that I thought it was appropriate. That first racing uh, is the first one on board because obviously I had experience. I was working at Gulfstream park for a few seasons as their on-air host uh, and one of their commentators, you also worked at Gulfstream. You also worked at Laurel. So you, you one-upped me there, but again, we have a lot of, uh, not only a relationship with first racing, but many, many of the people, the great people that work there. So we have been, we've really been fortunate.
0: And it's a very big month for first racing as well, obviously at Gulfstream Park, the Pegasus World Cup is coming up and obviously a really, really important way to kick off the year, not only for uh, first racing, but also for the industry as a whole.
1: You know, Gabby, I was really lucky to be there for the first year, actually for the first few years, and they kicked it off in style, really uh, had a horse like Arrogate to come there and to win. He was so impressive. You know, what a beautiful horse, unfortunately ill-fated, but he just was really, as they say in the business, ticked all the boxes and tremendous. Then they had Gunrunner, like you couldn't outdo Arrogate. You had to have a horse like Gunrunner and City of Light. They've just really had good, good horses, and they've always just evolved. They've taken another step in the last few years. They added Added a turf race. Now they're adding a Philly and mare race on the turf. So really they've been really trying to stay ahead of the curve and just brought in their package.
0: And it's incredible how this race really came about, Christina, It's essentially to keep some of those really good older handicapped horses in training. And that's what we see from several, several of the horses that are invited this year um, where we could potentially get the chance to see Nick's go before he goes off to his next career as a stallion at TaylorMade.
1: You make a really great point. Many of these horses traditionally would just retire after their Breeders' Cup, if that's what the, it was in the program for them to enter stud the next season. But now, because it's just right around the corner, it's in the end of January, they keep them in training. Sometimes they'll give them a month off, maybe a freshener in between, but they'll bring them back either for a next campaign or they'll retire them. So again, following sweep, like we said, we've had great horses coming into this race. We still have to get the good horses before they go off to stud or before they go off into other areas of the world to run in these big races. But it really is a great series and they've really tried to do something different and I think they have.
0: And I hate to refer to as the Pegasus as an appetizer, but it kind of is for the winter down at Gulfstream, uh, because obviously that does kick off the Triple Crown campaign, the Derby prep races you get down there, and also the Oaks prep races. So although it's fireworks in January, there's a lot more to come for the winter at Gulfstream.
1: Well, we've seen a lot of these horses, actually, they start off at Gulfstream in the winter. Many of the three-year-olds, they kick off, they either they debut or they run early in the season before they move on uh, to go on to the other Triple Crown races. So yes, it is very meaningful, but in all divisions, uh, whether it's for the Phillies Classic, uh, Classics, or for the Colts, or going on into other division, whether it's gonna be the main turf horses of the season or any category really, you get a very very good foundation here at Gulfstream and it really is what the marquee event of, uh, for the for the racetrack.
0: Well we're looking forward to the winter at Gulfstream but obviously Santa Anita, Laurel, Golden Gate, uh First Racing does so much for the sport and they do so much for us as well. Thank you so much to First Racing to be our sponsor on Let's Talk. We're going to pause for a second for a quick word from First.
1: Pegasus. The divine
0: winged horse that flew with heroes mounted for glory. Arrogant,
2: gunrunner, city of light, mucho gusto, and Nick's go. Racing, the thunder and the lightning on the track, energy in the stands. Bye. Fashion.
1: Thank you very much to our sponsor, First Racing. Very pleased to have them on board. And now we turn back to our conversation with the jockeys. And I asked Richie Migliori, what is the relationship between riders in the jocks room? Is it really a team sport? And how important is that relation in terms of health and safety on the track?
2: I think it's important. I think, you know, older riders understand that they make it safer out there if they're helping younger guys learn the things they should do and shouldn't do the places they should be and shouldn't be. Um, so it, it, it's not only their responsibility, it just makes it better for them as well. And it, honestly, you get to this level of, of Ramon, Johnny, you know, riders that, you know, of this ilk and yourself. Well, you know, but you know, you know what I'm saying? That, 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 um, you have enough confidence in your own abilities that you're not worried about helping someone else to improve. You, you know, so you, you're you're very confident in what you can do, and it's it's not just the the jockeys room community. And and listen, it's it's like a dysfunctional family at times. There's guys you get on with that you really genuinely like, and there's guys that you just don't really care for. They don't care for you for some reason. You're oil and water, and you've got to go back to the same locker room. But there's an old adage: if you let two old dogs chew on each other for a little while, they'll figure out a way to just stay apart. If you constantly are pulling them apart, they're always going to want to get at each other. So in the jockey's room, you know, you got guys that you're just not going to get on with, and you figure out a way to kind of just steer clear of each other and not, not get in each other's way as much as possible. But the whole community, Johnny brought up something, Carlos Figueroa. I met Carlos and David Figueroa when I'm 11 years old, started a pony ride business with them. Every Saturday, we're watching, you know, the racing show, and we're arguing about who's going to win. And I was a big Braulio Baeza fan, and Carlos is a big Angel Cordero fan, and who was the best. And, um, and then we all made it in the industry. Uh, you, you know, and, and then like Johnny to have that connection. It's, it's such a, 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 a close knit community in so many ways because you have connections to people, whether you know them directly or through somebody else. So I, I just found an issue when you know uh, Johnny brought up Carlos.
4: No, but it's funny because uh, you always had support, and you always have the doubters, though. You know, so. I always focus on the people who want to give me the opportunity and and forget about those, those people who doubted it. I mean, I, from, from the get-go, I mean, I can tell you, Mochera told Angel after a week being actually a week, two weeks riding in New York, he told me, and I didn't speak the language, so I didn't know, you know, what the heck he was telling him. Uh, and, and my friend Peter was in the pony, taking me on the on the, on the pony, and uh, Mochera's yelling at Angel, like, you both boys sucks. he's never going to make it here in New York. And I, I don't know what the heck he was saying. So I asked my 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 friend Peter. So Peter, what what is it? that you don't want to know. Come on, come on. You what is he saying about me? It's like he told you that you suck and you know, you're never going to make it here in New York. So those things you know, that you know I can uh, stay away from it and then I stay, you know, with people who are who are really supporting you, giving you the good vibes and all that. And so Carlo was one of those from from, from the Gego when I was when I was a bug boy that you know was working for for Hague Texture. And help me out to you know because I didn't speak any uh, the language, so help me with teacher and and tell me to you know you got to write this, you got to write that one, you know at least this one you can win. So you you concentrate the people who are who are really trying to help you and, and be positive. So it's it's a it's a balance that, that you have to take all your career no matter what. And and and, I, and, I, and I'm sure in in any job in any industry it's like that. There are people who are going to be negative about you, and other ones are going to be you know very positive and very supportive.
3: Yeah, well, uh, two things. Uh, there is the commodity of this uh, family, like in the jockeys room, which is uh, really crazy when you think about that uh, each of us is our own team. But at the same time, we're in the same locker room. So um, we're out there in um, trying to do our job, trying to protect our ground. But at the same time, there is this line and these un- unreading rules that you don't want to break, you know, when it comes to safety and uh, so and I think that for example in New York, uh, they do a very good job. Uh once in a while there is a guy who thinks that he's smarter than the race and he wants to cross this line. And and it's something that you don't even talk about, but um he's gonna he's gonna learn a lesson, you know? And they're gonna do it with class, but he's gonna learn that that, that doesn't fly in New York, let's just say. Now, when it comes to the support or the perception of how people see you outside the jockey's room, but within the sport is something that at least I learned the importance of really being detached to the opinion of others. Uh, although the opinion is important and you want the opinion to be good because you're doing very well, at the same time, you cannot let your emotions be dictated by how other people feel about you. And I'll give you an example. So, Good friend of mine who was a great supporter, Richard Englander. And I will never forget this. Um, he had me riding a really good horse that he had that I actually even went to ride in Dubai by the name of my cousin, Matt. And the only time in my whole career that I rode a match race, it was in Delaware Park. It ran a lot that day, and the race crashed down to two horses, my cousin, Matt, and another horse. So my cousin, Matt, typically in a normal race, he would be like mid-pack or stalking, you know, third, fourth. And in this race, the strategy completely changed. I said, there's only one other horse. We're going to go at it. So sure enough, I warmed him up well, and we went at it head to head. I happened to get lucky, and I won the race by a nose. So I said, great. So you won't believe he called my agent and said, what the heck is Ramon doing? That was awful. He's not riding the same, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like thinking, are you kidding me? And so if I were to let his perception of me influence how I feel, Uh, it would have been a roller coaster of of, of emotions. I was very aware of um, when I was doing things by And believe me, every day I would go home just kind of pretty hard on myself when I made a mistake. And I would be good listening to other people when there was a criticism, even if it was negative criticism, that I knew that it was grounded and it was uh, well-formed. But uh, when I have people who will elevate me and then take me down just as fast because of how things were going for them, uh, I certainly thought that it was important to detach myself from, from those uh, opinions.
2: Absolutely. It, you know you know what they say about uh, opinions. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But <laughs> it, it, I, I learned that lesson very, very young. I was 14 years old. I lived in Barn 46 at Belmont. Uh, Loretta Lustig, John Kimmel's uh, assistant, it's her office now. That was my room at the track. And we ran a horse in the last race. And I idolized Steve Cawthon. I wanted to be like Steve Cawthon. He had uh, been an apprentice four years before me. And I see Lenny Goodman who had been his agent coming down the escalator in the lobby of Belmont. He had his entourage around him. And, you know, I'm a kid from Brooklyn. I walked up to him probably a little too cocky. And I said, Mr. Goodman, my name's Richie Migliari. I'm going to be just as good as Steve Cawthon and I want you to be my agent. And I stuck out my hand, I shook his hand. And I remember he had this big pinky ring and he kind of held my hand and looked at the guys around him. He said, kid, As big as your hands and feet are, he goes, I got a friend who owns a construction company. I'll get you a job as a bricklayer. I cried all the way back to my room. I'm laying on my cot that night crying. I'm going to call my oldest brother. Come take me home. The best agent in the world just told me I'm going to be a bricklayer. Well, that was September of 1980. uh, August of 1981, I broke Steve Cawthon's money record. And Joe Shea, who had been Ron Turcotte's agent, was my agent. But they went right to Lenny Goodman, who had Jeffrey Fell's book at the time. Hey, what about this kid? Oh, I always knew he was going to be good. And I said it right there in the window. Said so no, he did not. He told me I was going to work in construction. So yeah, you got to be strong enough to believe in yourself and keep going forward.
1: But I think with your experience now, all of your experience, you obviously have a, you have many uh, miles under you uh, as a jockey. How important is it to also to pass it on? I know you touched on it, Johnny. All of you actually touched on this uh, in terms of the younger riders coming up today, because we do see it at times. We see some younger riders. They don't have the benefit of the experience that you guys have had uh, in terms of good or bad. So sometimes they may do some questionable things. Do you guys pull them up? Do you take them in, in the jocks room? And now, especially Richie and also Ramon, you guys are no longer riding, but will you take the time to go talk to a jock and try to and try to maybe push them in another direction?
4: Well, I, I do that a lot. You know, I am still do it, you know. So every time I see a, a kid who, you know, has some talent and they want to do it, just learn and, and trying to teach them the right way. Just, I mean, we, we touched about this and, and Richie talked about it, but, you know, it's like the the... the the more you teach those kids, the safer it is for you to write. You know, you want to write with a better, more knowledgeable than the kids who are very reckless though, you know. So it makes it a lot easier to write with people like that. And, and those who are reckless who are, don't want to learn, then those are the ones who make the liabilities, so, though, you know. It makes it really, really hard to write with and, and scary to you know to write with because they, they don't want to listen, they don't want to learn though, you know. And they want to learn the, the hard way so they learn in the right way when we are telling them. That you know you're doing it wrong, so it's it's hard. So some of them listen, and some of them won't.
0: But I'm curious if if um, any of you have had those conversations with young riders in the jock's room or or what have you, um, not only about riding but the lifestyle and. Um, mental health and speaking with them about weight management or money management or just everything that goes along with the lifestyle of being a jockey because it is so much more than just the riding aspect
4: I've been lucky enough that, that I have a lot of people help me help me along the, along with along the way to get to where I am right now so yes I do that and every time I see a kid who's doing well or or not even doing well just try to guiding even outside outside the Jackie's room to do the things that, that they need to do whether it's life insurance or disability insurance um, anything to do with counting or anything like that they make sure that they go to, to the right people though, you know and because and those guys who are making money that they get advantage of it right away though, you know so you try to guide them the right way and hopefully that they, they follow up and do the things that they, they, need, they need to do. Again, there are some of them they listen and some of them they don't because they have their own families and people who are on the ears and, um, and they, they just go on and do their own things and whatever the families are, you know, that, that the, the families that tell them to do. And obviously, for the most part, they're very they're, they're, they're wrong.
2: We, we had a great program uh, at the New York Racing Association when I was there full time after my riding career ended. I went to work for them in 2011. Um, the apprentice jockey program. And we met every Sunday morning for a few hours. It was mandatory. They had to meet with me every Sunday morning. And obviously we went over uh, race replays and looked at different things that they either did well or they did, uh, you know, made mistakes. Um, but I, I felt it was important to make it more comprehensive. Um, had a friend of mine, Jesse Iglesias, a money manager, come in talk to them about money, talk to them about saving money, talk to them about having a partner named Uncle Sam, that when they get a check for $20,000, it's not all their money that they've got to put money aside and pay taxes, Talked, you know, had a nutritionalist come in, uh, had people come down from the press department, how to communicate, how to talk. And even just for myself, I learned so much about how to educate um, young riders and, and you don't call a kid out for a mistake in front of his peers. Um, you talk about generalities, you talk about things they did well, and then say, I need to see you afterwards and then pull up the film. Cause you don't want to make them defensive or make them embarrassed in front of their peers. They're young guys. A jockey has to have a certain amount of swagger. You don't want to you know, push somebody down to build them back up. And it was a really great program. When I left, the program was discontinued Um which I would love to see because jockeys are the only athlete in the world that we don't have a coach. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, a golfer has a, has a swing coach, a baseball player has a, a hitting coach and, and, a, and a fielding coach. I mean, every athlete has a coach. Jockeys, not so much. It's more about guys like Johnny, Ramon, myself taking on that responsibility. Now, obviously I did it in a more formal role. that was part of my job and, and probably the most satisfying uh, job uh, or part of my job at Naira at that time.
3: Um, There is one thing that while talking to their peers or maybe an experienced jockey, um, it it is great when the apprentice in this case is open about their doubts. Uh, Listen, I am not sure about this or that, or sometimes I don't know if I'm going to make it. And that is uh, important. However, it doesn't happen often. There is uh, this uh, perhaps ego that if I open to uh, certain concerns that I have or doubts, uh, maybe I will be seen as a lesser or is somebody weak. Now, it is great to acquire or to receive some great tools to be able to manage or navigate these waters when uh, these uh, doubts come. At the same time, by now I realized that there are certain things that you cannot teach somebody, that they just have to be developed by you doing the work over and over and it's a um, we can talk here because we're talking about jockeys and just being an athlete, just the physical aspect and how difficult it is, and whether it is the finesse or the style on top of a horse or the physical aspect. But that is big time secondary when it comes to having a successful long career. To the ability to have a strong mental health and to be just that, that mental strength is so so important and it's something that you achieve just by doing the work, but also realizing that sometimes your best asset can be your worst enemy, which is your own mind. And for that, we definitely need support. It would be great to have uh, people who will come and speak to these jockeys about, you know, coaches about different things that they are going through and let them know that that's normal. And more importantly, then teach them and give them the tools as to how to uh, be able to overcome uh, these uh, difficulties. I think you just put a little
2: bow on that because Eddie maple was a huge mentor for me in the jockeys room. And I was very mercurial. If I won five, I was over the moon. If I got beat on five favorites, I was as depressed as could be. Um, and he, one day he looked at me after the last race. I was down. I got beat on some horses and, and he said, let me ask you a question. You you lost on some favorites. Say, what are you going to do in the morning? So I'm going to get up early. I'm going to go to the track. He said, well, you won four last Sunday. What did you do the next day? So I got up early, went to the track. He said, "So why don't you stay even? Why do you get so high and so low?" And he just kind of boiled it down to me, like I, I'm basically going to conduct myself the same way, and, and but I'm taking myself on this ride. I'm building myself up like I'm great, and then I'm, the bottom drops out like I'm terrible. And even with food, he said it to me. Like, I would obsess so much because I was starving so much that he would say, "You know, food's always going to be there," and that just kind of made sense. You know, now here I am, and I post pictures of food on social media. <laughs>
0: I still want a meal uh, made by Richard McGliory. One of these <laughs> looks phenomenal, but um, I I did because I think mental health is so important. So I just was uh, actually. Reading an article recently, um, Simone Biles is actually uh, named Time Magazine's Athlete of the Year for what she did and and coming out and exposing um, what she went through at the Olympics and and mental health. And this is there's definitely been kind of you know an undercurrent of the theme of of mental health here, but. If anybody has a specific story um, that might be helpful for uh, someone who is watching this, and if you kind of went through a dark time and what those tools were. Ram- Ramon, I'm so happy that you kind of mentioned um, teaching people tools and letting them know the tools that you have used to work through problems. Um, and I'm just curious if any of you have a story and what tools you might have used during that time.
2: I remember one day at Aqueduct. I won four races that day and I won the stake and in the last race, I made a a big mistake. It was a 10,000 dollar claimer. I think I was over anticipating winning my fifth race of the day is like a big number. It's kind of like a, a a magic number to win five in a day and, um, made a move I shouldn't have made. I wound up getting beat in those and the horse was the best horse. So in my mind, driving home, Forget the four I won, that race exposed me, that I was exposed that I wasn't a good rider, that I was, I, I had everybody fooled up until that point. That was the prevailing thought in my head. Went home and, and my wife, Carmela, was a great day, a terrible day. And I was upset because I got beat a nose on a horse that should not have lost. Couldn't eat. Couldn't sleep that night. Three o'clock in the morning, she comes down to the den, and I'm watching race tapes. And she's like, "What's going on with you?" And I, I was like, "I'm exposed. People saw her. I'm not a good rider." And she talk to me straight up and you know you need help with this and I I, I went to a sports psychologist and I and I, I was able to you know get out my fears I, there was always an undercurrent for me that I was never good enough I didn't come from a horse background I came from the city everything I did I was always a struggle I felt like to get to where I wanted to be and just to really be able to look at it honestly with yourself and go well wait a second you know you compete on the toughest circuit in the year uh, in, in the world day in day out year after year and you've You've established yourself. You don't continually have to prove, you know, you're, ne- you're never going to be perfect and you're going to make mistakes and it's okay to make mistakes. It doesn't mean that it's the end of the world and now you're no good. I, I had no middle ground. I, I was either on top of it or I, I, was, I really felt like I was just wasn't good enough.
4: I have to say that I'm, I went through the same things. I mean, I think we all go through that. You know, the only thing to mind is that I'm very spoken. I'd be in the jackets and tell them how stupid I am or how dumb I was and talk, talk about it. And then that's what the guys tell say so, Oh, Johnny's always crying. Winning all the races, always crying. And I think that was my way of, of, of stealing my way of coping my way to come out and get, get out of my, my system, you know? So, you know, I just like you, Richie, I will go home and I'll beat myself out of it, you know? I mean at the beginning I uh, even I remember uh, talking to you, Richard, one day it was very early in my career and it uh, could be 92, 93, whatever what year it was. And I went to you it's like, How do you do it, man? How do you do it when you know you're on top and you don't really want them when you don't want like he says "Oh, boy you just got to keep at it. Just keep running on it. I don't know if you remember that. I was like, we just got to keep at it. You know, that's it. You know, there's going to be bad days. they're going to be good, good, good days. So you got to take the good with the bad, the bad with the good, and you got to move on. you know. So I, that was one of my learning lessons that, you know, okay, you know, it happens to everybody, you know. So you, you got to keep going. I mean, 93 was a one of the, I remember, it was one of really good years, and all of a sudden going to Akira, I, I went to a slow uh time that I, was, I wasn't even winning i didn't want for a month that I, I think it was a month that i was not winning And that's when i went to you i was like how do you guys do it man how do you put up with all this stuff you know so uh yeah we all go through it i mean we, we all do it, but i'm I'm a, I'm a guy who talks about it and i'm very open to it i don't have anything
3: when i was an apprentice in my native land venezuela and I was working real hard to finally get an opportunity to ride a good horse because I I was I, I think that I have won just one race. So my agent found me a super good mount, a horse that really was even money. He should win. And I was so excited to ride this horse. And it was a trainer that was extremely successful. I come to the paddock and this horse just stood out. He looked absolutely gorgeous, beautiful. And the trainer gave me the instructions, and uh, I went out there, and I just messed it up completely. I uh, opened up at the half a mile, just moved too early, opened up like 10, 12 lanes, and uh, I just got via the wire. And uh, I remember my family going to see me ride, because they live a few hours away from from the racetrack, and uh, they went to see me ride. And when the race was over, I mean, the whole grandstand was booing me, and I come to the jogs room, get changed and go to the car. And as soon as I got into the car, when my family, my siblings were there, I'm just crying, and am And But I remember thinking the whole ride home because they, they took me to the apartment where I was staying, thinking, my gosh, if I was able just to turn back time and really ride this horse differently, that would be so awesome. Of course, I, I don't know, a fantasy that I had in my mind. That would be so great if I could just erase that mistake. As it turned out, on the next day, Exactly what Ari Maple asked me, Gloria. Um, that's what I chose to do. I Believe me, I just wanted to stay in and sleep. I was depressed. But I uh, got up early and I went to the track. And I went to see the trainer that I rode for the day before. And he actually put me on other horses to exercise. And after a few uh, months, uh, he gave me an opportunity to ride two other good horses. And I won on both horses. But the point is that by me making that mistake, that absolutely taught me the best lesson that I could have learned in my career, which was to be patient. Um, and that absolutely led to a lot of my accomplishments because it was okay for me to take a hold of a horse and just relax. So uh, what I thought in the moment that was just uh, the worst thing that could have happened to me, it happens to be the greatest blessing in disguise.
2: I think trainers make a big mistake. You know, replacing guys if they make a mistake, if they show the guy confidence, they'll ride better for them because they're not tied up. And not. And then young riders like I know. And this is important for young riders to hear when I wasn't doing good, especially after having some success. I would go home and feel like I couldn't reach out to my friends or my family because I felt like I was letting them down when I wasn't winning, And they were tiptoeing around me because they felt bad that I was maybe in a slump. When that's when you do have to reach out to them, and, and people should reach out to you, but it, it becomes this odd, you know, catch twenty two. Everybody's trying to tiptoe around each other, and I we would, would just go to such a lonely place. So if you're a young rider and you get in a slump, people want to hear from you, and and you want to hear from them. They're just probably in the same mindset as you, like they don't want to bother you. But that's when you need them.
1: Well, to that point, I think we have a perfect group here to add to add for our final question. If you're going to advise young riders or jockeys that are coming up behind you in terms of how they should maybe look at or plan for, because as you said, Richie, at the end is gonna come, at one, there is gonna be a last race. You are not gonna, at some point, you're not gonna ride anymore. How would you advise uh, young riders or people coming up behind you based on your personal experiences?
4: Yeah, for me, though, and I've been one of the lucky ones, I would say that on one of the blessed ones that are still here, right in my own terms. Um, I do tell them from the get go, you know, the people that I talk to, you know, so obviously work hard, learn from everybody, not just from the best. Because sometimes if you don't see like, the people who are making mistakes, you don't want to make those mistakes. Then go on to your life, basically, you know, but make sure you open a bank account, make sure you put your money, your your savings account, your retirement account. All those things need to be in place that there you'll maximize every year your retirement account. Those are things that you have to do for living. Uh you know, you don't know when this is gonna end, you know, it's just it's, it's, it's a job that you could be doing really good right now. And just like Richie and, and um and Ramon, you know, had to stop from writing and you hope that they 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 had enough or save enough that they, they can mm-hmm. Support yourself, you know. So those things that I try to, you know, listen, it's not just the job that you do, but it's also what you do with your job and your life outside, outside the jackets room.
2: Yeah, I, I think, impressing upon them, obviously being uh, responsible, you know, with your money and doing the right things in that respect, but kind of instilling the idea that, you know, this is one part of your life and it's, you know, there's a lot more life after you're done riding. I rode for 29 years. Um, I'm 56 now so you you have a lot of other life to live and everything's about balance um, I know I spent a, a great majority of my career out of balance my career was so much my focus got better when I had children because you you have to uh, obviously be a father and, and, and try to do all the right things but you know when I was riding I was looking at life through a keyhole a lot um, and it was when it was over you know the things that you know, hobbies and things like I don't golf or things like that, but I I, I like to hike. I like the mountains. I like to read. I'm, I'm constantly trying to improve um, intellectually. Um, you know, I only finished the eighth grade. They pay me to talk. So I'm always a little bit insecure that I've got to work on my vocabulary and how I present things. So I think it's about finding a balance. Understanding what you're doing right now is so important and it could set you up for the rest of your life, but also that you have to be well-rounded and, and you have to find other things that, um, you know, inspire you, that, that make you passionate.
3: My biggest advice is no about what people can see is what is happening when people cannot see you. What are you doing behind doors? What are you spending your time into you? Are you, uh, so that's, those are things extremely important. Why are you eating things that, you uh, may think that you're fooling other people by doing things that you know that are not the good thing to do or the right thing to do, um, but you're only fooling yourself. So everything becomes a habit. Just uh, become good at creating uh, healthy habits because if a uh, jockey wants to pursue a career to make a few bucks or to make X amount of money to buy something wonderful, good luck to you. But if you want to make out of this a great career, to be a Richard Migliori, to be a Johnny Velasquez, to break records, to win a lot of races, or to win a Kentucky Derby, uh, in order to do that, you need to also watch what people don't see.
0: And Ramon, uh, you practice what you preach. Do you guys have anything else you want to say? I think we're kind of getting to the, the close here.
2: It's been a lot of fun. Love, love talking about all this stuff. Um, you know, we're all very blessed to be in an industry that that we're in um, and we need to do a great, you know, a better job of educating people um, and, and demystifying what we do. And, you know, you're always going to have a faction of people that are going to be negative and they're going to try to tear something down. But the people that just don't know and are open to actually learning something, it's incumbent upon us. It's our responsibility to take that serious and educate and open the door, let them see actually what a beautiful game it is.
3: Thank you, Gabby and Christina and TDM for having us. This has been great.
0: Thank you guys so much Thank for you. coming on. And um, next episode, part two, will be with your wives.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Well, Christina, obviously, uh, mental health has been a uh, major, major topic, especially recently with athletes. And I thought this podcast was incredibly insightful just to hear from all three of them, their experiences and what they've been through.
1: You know, these are people that we're so used to seeing on a day to day basis. In uh, many cases, we see them on TV, we will see them at the racetracks. And it's really inspiring to hear them talk so personally personally about their experiences and some really, really intense things that have happened to them. They've gone through injuries. They've gone through very traumatic experiences. They've had the highs, they've had the lows, but Gabby, I really think that I'm like so grateful that they were able to not only come on, but to just be so forthright. And I'm just so appreciative of having these talks with people in our industry.
0: There's one thing that really stood out to me, Johnny Velasquez. We were talking about 2013, the Breeders' Cup, when he had that spill and almost died. And he's like, yeah, I almost died, but I'm the lucky one. And just the the mindset of these guys, too, how... Um, you know, how they work through bad days, how they work through injuries, how they work through coming back and just, you know, public perception and, you know, the perception of peers in the industry too. Um, I, I really hope that, um, people who athletes or just general people in the industry who might've struggled through something similarly have, um, maybe a couple more tools in their toolkit now.
1: Well, I think these guys are iron. They're iron men. They're warriors. And I think we sometimes don't give them the credit. They're under a lot of pressure, under a lot of stress. And they really have to come up with their own individual unique ways to deal with that stress. So again, I'm just so not only appreciative of them, I admire them. And I just to get to the where they have gotten to and in in also in this profession, it's hard. So I really think they're great role models, Gabby, for, for the rest of the industry.
0: Yeah. And like uh, Richie Migliori said, you know, this is a, a, a career that it's so unique in that you don't have a coach. You pretty much have to coach yourself and lean on peers and mentors to get you through it. So yeah, I, I just, I had so much fun with this podcast.
1: Well, and we haven't actually been on this podcast uh, for a little while, Gabby. Uh, And as I was saying a little bit earlier, uh, you've been busy in the interim since our last podcast.
0: I have been busy. My son, Crew, was actually born on the 12th of November. So that's kind of the reason behind a a little bit of a hiatus. It is chaotic in the Cassie household, but uh, hopefully we can get back on more of a schedule. Um, He has been the best baby. I'm telling you, I, I can't, I am so lucky. He gives us four hour stretches at night. And, uh, so that's why I look very well rested because he was a total rock star last night.
1: Well, folks, this is going to be a name that you're going to have to remember. Of course, uh, Gabby, uh, a lifelong horsewoman; uh, Norm, Cassie, a lifelong horseman. Uh, of course, Crew. We know he's going to at some point be involved in some capacity with horses. But we're so looking forward. I've seen pictures of him. I'm so looking forward to seeing him uh, in, in in the flesh.
0: Yeah, we'll see. Well. Uh- <laughs> Norman said he's already, well, there's already been a compilation of Breeders' Cup classics um, that has been shown to him many times on YouTube. So that's what's going on.
1: <laughs> well, so God bless and uh, God bless. Thank God for a happy, healthy baby that sleeps uh, for stretches and periods of time. And uh, we'll be seeing him soon and we'll be seeing all of you soon, too.